Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Eleni Tomaso from the St. Anna Children's Cancer Research Institute in Vienna on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You did your PhD at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Cambridge and a postdoctoral training at the Broad Institute in the Harvard Department for Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology in Cambridge. You are a 2016 recipient of the Elise Richter Fellowship, and you are now a principal investigator at the St. Anna Children's Cancer Research Institute uh, since January 2018. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation. So I first time I started thinking about becoming a biologist was back when I was in high school. So this was um, around the time of 1996, 99. So this was a very exciting time because Dolly the ship was all over the news. Uh, so when uh, the first um, um, cloning from somatic cell happened. So this was my first uh, interest where I just started buying Scientific American and trying to understand what's going on. So when I finished school and my older, older brother was already studying biology. So when I finished high school, I followed him and I went to Scotland to pursue my undergraduate studies in molecular biology. And then after my, I did one year um, work placement in Germany, in Heidelberg. So this was my first uh, full-time experience working in the lab where I realized how it is and what it means to be a, a scientist. And then after I graduated, I got accepted for a PhD at the Wellcome Trust Sanke Institute. Then I went for my postdoc um, in Boston. I did um, Uh, two, uh, about a period of two years, um, uh, let's say I left science for about two years where I went to diagnostics. Um, and this was very a very interesting experience to me for me because before I was very much into basic biology, more technology development, and then I had a chance to see how we could apply technologies in let's say, medicine. Um, so I worked for two years for the American Red Cross in the U.S. as a scientist, um, which made me excited to into uh, thinking of now pursuing a career in more translational research. So in 2012, I moved to Vienna and I joined the Children's Cancer Research Institute at the Uh, the Santana Kinder, uh, Children's Cancer Research Institute, um, where I could now bring my knowledge uh, I had gained during my undergrad and postgraduate studies, and as well my experience at the American Red Cross into research focusing on pediatric cancers, and with a aim to do, let's say, um, plan our projects to be more translational, so have projects, work on projects that but that could be applicable, let's say, in the within the near future to, to patients. Um, and I did my undergrad and postgraduate studies in epigenetics. Uh, and then applying epigenetics in pediatric cancers makes complete sense because, as you may know, pediatric cancers have not a lot of mutations. And uh, studying the epigenome, it was a, a 
like uh, it was um, actually an, a good fit for me to move in uh, because as we found out, epigenetics play really a major role um, in pediatric cancer. So um, it's quite exciting. Before you take away all my questions, <laughs> let, <laughs> let me ask them. Um, so coming to your science that centers around the epigenome-based precision medicine with the focus on Ewing sarcoma, um, could you please give us a short summary and introduction into this type of cancers that you now focus on? So Ewing sarcoma, it's an interesting disease, especially for people that are interested in the epigenetics field. So it's a solid cancer. It develops mostly on the bone, but also on the soft tissue. And it's the second most common bone cancer in children after osteosarcoma. Uh, so the peak incidence is around the age of 15. But you can have also much younger children uh, developing the disease, but in rare cases, it can also appear in adults. Um, so in adults, it would be mostly young adults, but we can also have cases of rare, rare cases of people that are around the age of 60. So it's a, a very rare disease. Um, so I would just give you an example. In Austria, we have very few cases per year. So it's like not more than 10, I would say rather five. Um, which makes it a bit difficult to study because it's a rare disease. And if you have a few cases per year, you don't have material. But um, what we have to keep in mind, although it's rare, it's still one of the pediatric cancers with the lower survival rates compared to other pediatric cancers. So let's say if you now assume like pediatric leukemia, it's almost 90% curable. Uh, Ewing sarcoma, it's still one of the diseases that has not profited a lot from current developments. So if someone is presented with a localized disease, a diagnosis, let's say only in the primary side, um, about 70% of this patient will do fine. But if someone has metastasis already a diagnosis, um, we have a very low um, survival rates, about 20%. And what is another important thing to keep in mind that these are pediatric cancers, pediatric patients. So they get treated, they get cured, but then they will have a life ahead of them, let's say, 60, 70 years still to go. And this is a major difference with uh, adult patients because if an adult presents cancer over the age of 60 or 70, then you have, let's say, a shorter lifespan. And the problem with pediatric cancers is that, especially for Ewing sarcoma, is patients receive high-dose chemotherapy for a long time, uh, meaning that uh, even if they, they, a lot of them survive uh, the treatment, but then Later on, they will develop side effects and even secondary cancers due to this high-dose chemotherapy. So we need to change this and we need to do something about it. And uh, given that for the last 30 years, we actually give the same therapy, it's quite uh, disappointing. <laughs> so all Ewing sarcoma patients are enrolled in clinical trials and they all more or less receive the same chemotherapy. So we need to change this, but to change this, first of all, we have to start thinking a bit, let's say, um, better or think novel approaches, how we could do uh, precision medicine in, in these patients, like come up with better biomarkers or better targets to target, let's say, how can we target cancer cells? And of course, one way to look at bit, um, for, um, for methods for precision medicine is to look at mutations, genetic aberrations. So let's say a few years ago, there are a lot of focus on uh, dissecting the genome on, of viewing sarcoma patients. There, so there are a, lot, a few studies where they did whole genome sequencing, trying to look for mutations. 
But what is interesting, we know what's the driver of the disease. So it's an oncogenic fusion protein. So you have two genes fused together. So this is the AWS, which is an RNA binding protein, AWSR1. And then we have an ETS binding factor, a transcription factor. The most common is FLY1 that are fused together. And then they make this chimera that they have these very powerful properties. So apart from this fusion oncogene, which is actually used also for diagnostic purposes on the molecular level, so to confirm that someone has Ewing sarcoma, you look for this fusion, um, there are not a lot of other recurrent genetic aberrations. So the most common one is TAC2, which is also relevant for epigenetics, which is uh, present in about 20% of the patients. So it's a a member of the cohesin complex. And then in about 10 to 15% of the patients, we have TP53 mutation and then a few other structural aberrations, but that's all. Um, and currently there are a lot of ongoing initiatives where they try to do precision medicine based on genomic sequencing, especially for patients that relapse and it's almost certain they're going to die. So there are also a lot of programs in Europe. So one of them, it's called INFORM, that it's based at, in Germany at the DKFZ. So now more or less all patients that relapse undergo molecular profiling, looking mostly at the genome, trying to find targets for therapy. But so far, UX sarcoma patients have not profited from this because they're non-mutation, so they're they're not mutation, you don't get any candidates like for target to target with existing drugs. So this is the reality at the moment. And so, but at the same, so but we and others also um, because of this lack of genetic aberrations, but having a cancer with such aggressive phenotype, but also we see a lot of, um, it's very clinical heterogeneous. We try to ask if the epigenome might play a role. So when I started working on Ewing sarcoma, we just tried to do a, an ENCODE type of study, taking Ewing sarcoma cells and doing comprehensive profiling of epigenome marks. That's a lot of uh, histone acetylation or DNA, uh, DNA methylation, histone methylation marks to see if there's anything interesting when looking at the epigenome. And we also ask how the epigenome changes when we, we alter the expression levels of the AWS Fly1 fusion proteins. And there we found some interesting patterns. And the most interesting thing we found is that we have a unique enhancer signature in Ewing sarcoma cells that it's regulated by AWS Fly1. And AWS Fly1 has a dual property. So it can be an activator of epigenetic state, so it can open up chromatin, but could also close chromatin or keep chromatin in a locked state. So what we and others have found is that AWS Fly1 induces de novo neo-enhancers that are only present in Ewing sarcoma, which is great because this is another way now of, um, so what, what we found is the signature is so unique that if we didn't have the AWS Fly1 to diagnose the disease, we could use this epigenetic, uh, the so enhancer Sorry to interrupt you. So you could, you could use ataxic to profile open chromatin and you would see a, a, a stark difference between Ewing sarcoma patients and healthy patients? Uh, so what we did initially, we work on cancer cell lines, on Ewing sarcoma cell lines, just because uh, getting material is not so easy. Uh, and we knocked down AWS Fly1 and we looked at the 
different epigenetic markers before and after knockdown. So we did a toxic and we also did a histone methylation and acetylation. And what it turns out is that, of course, a toxic peaks change, but the most um, dynamic marker was histone 3K27 acetylation. And this is really cool because um, at least until recently, K27 acetylation mark was the mark used to define enhancer elements. And then when we published this work, this was back in 2014-15. So back then there was a lot of excitement because there were their young papers coming out discussing super enhancers. So we also went in and we looked at uh, super enhancers in Ewing sarcoma, et cetera. We found some, but the most interesting and what we have to keep in mind is that K27 acetylation, which is an enhancer mark changes. So we have a lot of regions that are opened and activated um, by the AWS FLY1 fusion protein. And then work that has been done by other groups, so mostly by Nicolò Rigi and Miguel Rivera from Harvard and from Zurich. What they have found, uh, and also Sigal Kados, is that they, they try to now understand a little bit better how AWS FLY1 can go up, can go on and open uh, these regions. So these regions are mostly located within microsatellite repeats. So they have GGAA repeat elements. And what they have shown is that EWS Fly1 has a prion-like domain. So it's a disordered protein with not a clear protein structure. So the EWS part of the fusion has a prion-like domain that somehow interacts with the buff complex. And then this brings the fusion to this GGA repeats and opens up chromatin. So this is nice. And I'm sure there will be a lot more coming out within the next few years. But then the other thing that we found quite interesting is that EWS fly also locks some enhances at the repressive state. And then by going on and looking a little bit closer what these enhancers do, so these are enhancers that are important for development, for differentiation, and these are enhancers that we have found to be uh, important for mesenchymal differentiation. So if you put these enhancers in, so uh, if you think that... Uh, um, so we, we have a model now that we believe that somehow this repressed, or we call them anti-correlated enhancers, tell us something about the cell of origin of Ewing sarcoma. So one important thing I didn't say is that we still don't know the cell of origin of Ewing sarcoma, meaning we don't even have good mouse models or in vitro models to study the disease. And what we think uh, that there are perhaps more than one uh, cells of origin for Ewing sarcoma that somehow reflect different differentiation, the differentiation state of the corresponding cell of origin. So pediatric cancers are also considered developmental diseases because um, they happen in premature tissues or cells during early development. And, and perhaps the cell of origin here plays a role. Um, and this is also something we are interested in and we are looking at, especially if we go back to precision medicine approaches, because perhaps the clinical heterogeneity we see among different patients perhaps could be explained by the cell of origin and the different epigenetic state of the cell of origin at the time when the fusion was induced. Yeah, you, you also looked and you also mentioned this um, on uh, at DNA methylation in, in Ewing sarcoma. Um, so did you do a genome-wide screen probably? Um, and what did you find out about the DNA methylation? 
so our initial work was mainly focused on cell lines, but working on cell lines, we know it's not always great. So as a next step, we wanted to go on and do similar kind of analysis, but on tumor material, just to confirm that what we see in cell lines is actually the case in tumors. Um, and what was easy, so we had easy access to DNA back then, because uh, as I mentioned, there were a lot of ongoing projects uh, international projects looking for genetic aberrations. So we could get access to this DNA. And then we did DNA methylation profiling because, of course, we couldn't do histones, we couldn't do ataxic because we were getting just DNA. And then we went on and we did DNA methylation analysis. And first of all, what we showed is that DNA methylation levels nicely anti-correlate with histone K27 acetylation levels, at least in our data set. So we could bioinformatically infer, let's say, active or not active enhances based on lack of presence of DNA methylation. So we managed to have a cohort of about 140 patients and we did um, uh, RRBS, reduced representation bisulfite sequencing that for the majority of them. For some, we also did whole genome sequencing. And then we just tried to see if we can get we just did all um, like really comprehensive bioinformatic analysis. Initially, we were hoping to find subclusters of patients, like that we could subgroup patients based on DNA methylation patterns, but we could, we didn't find any clusters. So, and for a long time, I have to admit, we didn't know what to do with this data set because there was nothing really clear um, uh, for the uh, for the disease. And then. Uh, we looked at the data a little bit different. Uh, so given that we had previously defined enhancer elements that are regulated by WSFLY1, either activated or deactivated, we, um, we asked what's the methylation status in these specific regions we have looked at. And then what we have found is that if we look at these enhancers that can be activated, that are regulated by WSFLY1 and look at the epigenetic state in a big cohort of patients, we can define the a disease and epigenetic disease spectrum for Ewing sarcoma patients that has two dimensions that are not dependent to each other. So there are two dimensions that are not affected by each other. And one dimension of this epigenetic disease spectrum, I think, defines the degree of epigenetic reprogramming driven by the AWSFLY1 fusion protein. And these are these de novo enhancers. And then it seems the stronger the activity of the AWSFLY1 in the corresponding tumor cells, and the, the stronger this um, the, the higher the activation score of these enhancers are. Um, and this now based on this, so we gave to each patient a score based on the activity of uh, Ewing sarcoma specific enhances. So these are the enhances that activated by WSFLY1. And then this, the, the, so patients are positioned into a spectrum and then you will have uh, patients with high high score there and low score. Um, and then what was interesting is, um, yes, so this is one thing. And then the other spectrum was mostly built around enhances. And this to me is the most interesting and exciting, uh, but this is personal perhaps. And uh, this is built around these anti-correlated enhances that are linked to the cell of origin of Ewing sarcoma. So if you again position the patients based on their activity scores, 
at the enhancer element. So we take an aggregate score for all enhancers that we have found before to be repressed by WSPLY1. So we have, again, we have the patient's position in a spectrum. And then at the one end of the spectrum now, we have a state that it's more similar to the state of these enhancers to pluripotence themselves. Whereas in the other end of the spectrum, we have cells that tend seem to be more differentiated towards the mesenchymal lineage. So then you have this mesenchymal uh, pluripotent uh, dimension. And then what was interesting also is that patients that uh, their position towards the pluripotent state of the spectrum tend to do worse. So they tend to be metastatic, whereas those that are more to the differentiated um, end of the spectrum, they tend to be more localized, doing better. And then the other thing, perhaps it's not surprising, patients in the pluripotent cell state tend to also have, have, a lot of them have the stuck to mutation. But this was not a surprise because um, patients with stuck to mutation, they tend to be metastatic and have a worse clinical outcome. So somehow this all fit together. And now based on the spectrum, um, we can start planning even a precision medicine approach because we think now that we have different cells of origin, uh, EWSFLY1 is induced and it locks uh, the cells in this state. And now the question is, can we define now what the gene regulatory network of each of the different cells of origin? And can we come up with context-specific therapies where we target the cell of origin, assuming that this state continues to have an impact on the cells still after transformation? Uh, Or can we come up with biomarkers and stratify patients to good responders, bad bad responses? And this is something we are currently working on. Um, Yeah, That sounds very interesting on the one hand, but on the other hand, it also sounds like you really need to be precise on the analysis and to control also for every kind of variable and uh, kind of thing. So I guess most of your work is no longer like wet lab stuff, but also more in the analysis uh, and correlation uh, field, right? Yes. So I think um, what we have to do now, and this is what we do, it's combination of both. So we have to continue working with um, patient material. And now we have all the possibilities to do this that we didn't have a few years ago. So now we can do single cell analysis. Uh, where we can do epigenetics, we can, so we do multi-ohms, so where you can combine. So um, on the same cell, we can look at gene expression and ataxic. Uh, and now there are more and more protocols where you can do single cell ataxic, uh, single cell cut and run, cut and tag. So now we can, and this is, I guess we do, but also a lot of other people I'm pretty sure are doing. And uh, I hope within the next year or so we will know more because so far we were looking at epigenetic heterogeneity between patients using bulk data. So we were using bulk DNA methylation and we're taking one score per patient. But now to be, it's interesting now to go one step deeper and then see are all enhancers behaving the same even within a cell or we can start subclassifying these enhancers and can we target them? Like are there specific groups and how can we target enhancers? This is also another big question. Um, Uh, But at the same time, I think it is important to also work in the lab where you can try, we can start trying, driving uh, 
EWS fly one oncogenic transformation in a very in very well defined cell types, uh, where we can start asking the question: Do different cell of origins have an impact on the tumorigenic potential of the EWS fly one? But this is also not an easy task because, uh, of course, you need to find the right type of cells to to study. Uh, uh, and there, perhaps, we could take advantage of developmental biology. Yeah, so, assuming that you yeah. said developmental disease. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> right now, you you uh, touched like your work on patients, and um, now the work moves maybe more into the cell culture model. Um, but there is also another uh, important thing, also maybe in the cancer field, um, and this is liquid biopsies, right? So getting patient samples an easy way, just taking some blood um, and you also and then sequencing cell-free DNA and look at what is uh, what kind of biomarkers are uh, present in the blood of cancer patients. Um, you also worked on that and you developed an analysis pipeline for that. Um, so what was the scope of this study and uh, yeah, how does this all integrate into um, um, the cancer field? Yeah, that's, uh, thanks for this question, because actually we have a very exciting project at the moment on liquid biopsies. So liquid biopsies, currently, it's a great tool, especially for solid tumors, uh, because this gives us access to tumor material, uh, minimally invasive. So the problem is, especially when you work with children with solid cancer, to get access to the material children the patients have to undergo surgery. And uh, this is not all possible. And in Ewing sarcoma, you get material normally a diagnosis, and this would be a needle biopsy that you share with the pathologist. So the pathology will just give us the leftover, what they will not need for their diagnosis. Then you can get material, but very rarely after induction chemotherapy at surgery, where they try to remove as much of the tumor, but there is, you mostly get necrotic tissue. And then at relapse patients, they very rarely undergo surgery. So that's a, a major limitation. So we could perhaps implement this limitation by studying liquid biopsies, just a very brief uh, introduction in liquid biopsies. So uh, even if you take now blood from a healthy individual, there will be some cell-free DNA circulating in the plasma, in the bloodstream. And this comes from normal tissues that die for different reasons. And most of the cell-free DNA will come from hematopoietic cells, as expected. When a patient has cancer, there is the, the levels of cell-free DNA in the bloodstream increase. And this cell-free DNA mostly comes from tumor samples that they burst and they release DNA in the blood just because they are apoptotic or necrotic or highly proliferative. So that means now we can just take blood, isolate cell-free DNA and study. And so far, a lot of work in the cancer field has been done looking at genetic aberrations, at mutations. So, and perhaps uh, liquid biopsies are already used in the clinic for a number of uh, so, uh, adult cancers, but for pediatric cancers is not yet the, the case. And the major reason here is because we don't have a lot of genetic aberrations. So how do you monitor How can you, because one important thing when you work with cell-free DNA is to discriminate cell-free DNA that comes from healthy cells, non-tumor cells from, to the DNA that comes from uh, cancer cells. So cancer, um, uh, cancer circulating DNA. And looking at mutations is one an easy way to go. For Ewing sarcoma, it's a little bit more complicated. One way to do it is to look for the fusion 
for the AWS Fly One, but this is also not easy because you have to look at the RNA and uh, it's you don't get the cDNA, so you have to know exactly the breakpoint for a specific patient where the the, the chromosome translocation happens. So when uh, with, um, so we thought perhaps we could develop an assay, a minimal invasive assay for monitoring using sarcoma based on this unique epigenetic signature that we have defined back then, and. Back in 2016, there was a very nice, I think this was, a, when I saw this paper, I thought, oh, we should go on and try it now in, in Ewing sarcoma. So there was a, a paper published by Jay Sentur and his team showing that by doing whole genome sequencing, paired at whole genome sequencing on cell-free DNA, you could infer genome-wide nucleosome positioning. And the question is, how do you do it? And the answer to this is because cell-free DNA is fragmented. Um, and the average size is 167 base pairs. And this is exactly the length of the DNA that it's wrapped around nucleosomes. So if DNA is not protected from a nucleosome, so if you have open chromatin, DNA in the bloodstream will be uh, degraded by perhaps nucleases or whatever it's anything in the blood, whereas DNA that is protected by nucleosomes or proteins will be protected. Um, so, so, so sorry you to interrupt you. So this means, are the nucleosomes still there then when you isolate the liquid? So the, yes, the DNA, yes, yeah? yes. And there is even a paper from a group in Israel now, I forgot where they, I forgot the name, where they do ChIP-seq actually on cell-free DNA and uh, it works nicely. We have not tried ourselves, but it works. And you can do MIDIP-seq. So there was a paper doing CF DNA MIDIP-seq. You can do DNA methylation, of course. What we decided to go for is based on this um, paper back in 2016 to do whole genome uh, pair and sequencing and then infer nucleosome positioning. So this is the, the other way around to ATAC-seq, right? So in ATAC-seq, you sequence what is not protected by the nucleosomes, and in here you would sequence... Here you protect, yeah. yes. And then what we looked, so then we, we came up, we, we developed a tool that we call Liquiris, and now you can uh, we can make we make it as a Python tool, so uh, people can, um, even people that are not um, uh, highly uh, experienced bioinformaticians could run it. So what we look for is, um, coverage. So we look at, at regions of interest. So in our, uh, uh, so working on Ewing sarcoma, this is very easy to do because we have these Ewing sarcoma specific enhancers. So we take, so it's about 6,000 regions, let's say, and then we take their coverage aggregate. So we look at the 6,000 6, regions and they say how the coverage at this region is. And then we, there is a so we call it the deep. So the deeper the deep, the more Ewing sarcoma cell-free DNA you have in the bloodstream because let's say uh, DNA that comes from healthy cells will have closed chromatin there. So you will get lots of reads. Whereas if you have lots of cell-free DNA coming from the blood, you would not have coverage. So you get it. It's, it's like a deep. Uh, so we call it a deep by ourselves. Um, and then we, ca we came up with a way to even uh, quantify this lack of coverage. And this way we could infer percentage of tumor-derived DNA in the bloodstream. Um, so this, this uh, and this works quite nicely because now we can use even this assay for as a minimal invasive diagnostic 
tool to even for diagnosis, even to classify. Let's say you have a patient that comes to the hospital today and with symptoms or that looks like Ewing sarcoma. So we could immediately get blood from this patient and run our assay and say, yes, it's Ewing sarcoma. And you don't have to wait for the patient to go to surgery and have biopsy and then wait for the pathology. So this, we, um, we say it works, but of course, before we bring it to the clinic, we have to validate it. And this is what we are doing at the moment. Uh, so validating now. So like we think at the, so we have developed this assay, but to bring it now to the clinic, we have to develop. And of course, the other thing, and this was actually my motivation going into this liquid biopsy. I want to be able, we would like to be able to monitor how the epigenetic state of the tumor cells changes over time. Uh, and uh, like liquid biopsies now, they give us the possibility to collect blood as often as we want. So you can get a blood tube every week, for example, and then follow how the epigenetic state changes. Currently, the, we are trying to do this, but it's not easy because to follow epigenetic heterogeneity over time, either interpatient or intrapatient over time, using liquid biopsies, one thing you have to do is to correct for tumor content in the blood. So this is perhaps technical. And at the moment, it doesn't work very well. But we're also trying other methodologies. So one way is to do, there was also another paper trying to do something similar where they came up with a, a bioinformatic tool that they call Delphi, uh, which looks at the data in a different way. So we were looking at the coverage at specific regions, whereas Delphi, what it does, looks at the how the fragment size of cell-free DNA fragment changes in genome-wide because what has been shown also is that tumor-derived DNA tends to be even shorter than 167 base pairs. And the shorter the cell-free DNA in specific genomic loci, the more tumor DNA you have. So they came up with a bioinformatic tool where it looks at the the ratio of short fragments to log fragments at 100 K bins over the genome. So this way now you don't just get the epigenetic state for let's say our regions of interest, but you will start resolving the patterns genome-wide. If this, uh, so this is also one way to go. Um, and we have also done this and it works uh, more or less, but it needs further refinement before we go on and say, okay, now we can monitor single enhanced elements over time, or we follow the epigenetic state over time. And so now we have also, we are trying to, we moved now a little bit our technology from whole genome sequencing to enzymatic-based DNA methylation, whole genome sequencing. Um, so there are now new protocols for DNA methylation analysis. So before we were doing a reduced representation bisulfite sequencing, but this bisulfite treatment is a little bit harsh to the genome. So meaning when you apply this to cell-free DNA, perhaps it destroys the fragmentation patterns. But for us, fragmentation patterns are important. So we do now a DNA methylation profiling using these new protocols where you can do uh, enzymatic DNA methylation analysis without destroying the DNA. So now in our assay, we will combine fragment-based uh, patterns of cell-free DNA, and on top, we will add DNA methylation to see if we can increase the resolution of our assay, but also the sensitivity of our assay. 
So usually um, the last question of the scientific part of the interview is what you are working on right now and maybe what your plan is for the next five years. Um, you covered most of it, I think, already, or is there something that you uh, did not uh, cover already? Yes, I, yeah, I think I covered most of it. So liquid biopsy is one thing now we are continue to work on um, in collaboration also with uh, clinicians where we are trying now to bring this assay to the clinic. Um, uh, for diagnosis, but also as a molecular um, minimal disease, di minimal disease um, detection tool to define, let's say, when we monitor patients to see if we can detect relapse early on. Like I think it's already somehow this approach already applied in leukemia, but it would be good now to develop such a, a tool for pediatric cancers because we believe if we could detect um, uh, relapse early on, we could treat it better. And one other thing is to uh, understand how this inferred epigenetic um, heterogeneity plays actually a role in disease progression and uh, resistance to therapy. So these are also things we are going on. And I think the rest I covered, like looking at the cell of origin and uh, yeah. All uh, this will be very interesting to see what comes out of your lab in the next couple of years, uh, because these are clearly very interesting topics. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know what to, uh, how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Uh, many times. <laughs> many times. And I think, um, yes, to, um, yes, as I said before, we had um, uh, times where we had data and we didn't know what to do with this data. And especially in this era now where we gen we can generate data, yes, this is now possible, but the question is how to interpret the data and how to make the most out of it. So this is the uh, biggest challenge. And that means spending a lot of your time looking at data and trying to understand data. This is also something. Um, so we need to, to uh, give time to, how can I say, digest uh, the data and uh, understand the biology. Because uh, nowadays we are in a phase where you can easily generate data, but we need to also to take the time to understand them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to make sure that what you analyze is correct and in the end and, uh, is uh, indeed an advantage to the patient. Yes. And, and this is also a relevant question. It's okay, this, I found this, but... Is this relevant and how can this be translated into the clinic? And this is actually in our institute that um, we are dedicated institute for pediatric uh, at, in Vienna uh, for pediatric cancer research. And we are connected to a hospital here. This is an important aspect in our everyday work. So in the last 38 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in the interview? So for me, I'm happy and I'm proud of that we have now this, we have defined um, this epigenetic state of Ewing sarcoma. And I think this has opened up a lot of uh, new directions for research and uh, new hypotheses. And I think it will be also super relevant for, for therapy in the near future. So in the end, bringing my knowledge um, from my undergrad studies and postgraduate studies and, uh, on the epigenetic field into pediatric oncology, I'm, I was very proud of and I'm happy that this developed this way. And I'm also very excited to see what the next few years will bring uh, to the field. So thank you, Eleni, for your time and for being on the show. 
Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.